Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. We're so happy to be back for another week. It's going to be a really good discussion today. Uh, this is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, Kira, how are you? How's I'm things? good. Good. <laughs> getting, getting through it. I feel like there's something about the sort of the pandemic winter that's been hitting me recently. It's like this extreme form of hibernation that maybe is a good thing in some ways, some days, but um, also hits a little more than like that kind of wintry hibernation mode typically does, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's a weird dynamic because it's sort of overlaying with, I think there's a lot of, certainly in climate circles, and I think to a certain extent in design circles, there's a lot of busy activity happening around policy and other things. And so there's this sort of current of busyness, but also this, you know, winter and pandemic overlay. It's, a, it's an odd combination, I find. Yeah, it really is an odd combination. I think that's a good way of capturing it. It's that somehow we're all feeling like there's a lot to do. We feel very busy. We feel these demands on our time. Mm -hmm. And yet our bodies are a little bit like, what do you want from me? <laughs> like, <laughs> that kind of thing. And yeah. I, yeah, and I've been experiencing that. I, I was talking with a gentleman in New York who um, just last week, it was a snow day there. So his four-year-old was at home, which is not normal. And he was like, you know, sitting in his closet doing his calls. And, uh, and he just, <laughs> he just totally, we'd never met before. And he just broke down immediately when we first started talking. He's like, it's, I'm like, I don't have much emotional energy right now. I can't, I don't know that I'm really doing any of the stuff I should be doing. Life is a little bit, you know, untethered, but here yeah. I am. <laughs> well, there's a lot, and there's a lot of demands, I think also in a number of different, I feel like there are so many things pulling our attention where I am sort of personally, you know, there's a lot of discussions going on about school districts and mm. school unions and whether, you know, the reopening question. I mean, and that is, you know, as a parent, I am like sort of in that in a certain way and the demands for sort of advocacy and work on that front are growing oh, a yeah. lot. And it's so, it's like a whole separate <laughs> thing. And I'm, I, I just, I keep, you know, it's how many times can you change um, focus in a day. You know what I mean? There's a lot. There's just a lot. I think it's yeah. taking a big toll. So yeah, uh, I hope that for those of you listening, this is a nice break, uh, whatever you're doing. I hope you're like, you know, you're walking your dogs or you're uh, getting a breath of fresh air or yes. otherwise maybe just relaxing on a different couch than the couch that you work on or something. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a little tougher right now. Um, but you know, we are in a global pandemic life is, but it's not, a great time to, to tap in, to hear about, um, ways of learning and doing things that are inspiring. I mean, that's the, to me, that's what, I don't know what these conversations really, they're like yeah. a little window into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also nice. I think I've been telling people I've been really antisocial lately. I think it's a part of the whole winter, you know, pandemic winter thing. Um, and so it's nice to get a chance to really to, to meet new people through the yes. podcast and to have these deeper conversations about what's going on in the world. I don't do that nearly as much as I would like to. Yep. I think we're also all like I've been talking to a lot of people about how we're feeling the feeling the loss of our conference hangouts, you know, the moments where you get to sit in a, whether it's like in a hallway or actually properly with a glass of wine and catching up, 
it's it, it's we're, we've gotten to that point now where we're getting so out of touch with each other because we lost that whole year of moments yep. when we knew what each other were doing that this sure. is sort of there's that there's the yeah. conferences and there's also seeing like project work in person yeah. you know yeah visiting a project like i feel like enough a few of the that happens for me a few times a year and i really learn so much in the you know in like site visits and some of that and so without any of that it's starting to feel really disconnected from the real work yeah yeah exactly yeah who knows what people are building right now <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but i know there's a lot of building going on um at least you know uh, yeah. that at this point in the in the process of the reopening of the economy it seems like things like things are getting built so Here's to all of you who are building things without recognition out there right now. Uh, yes. We we see you. Um, yeah. Well, that may actually be kind of a great way to introduce our guest for today. For today, I'm so excited about all the work that she is doing and bringing a little bit more uh, of a spotlight to it because it is uh, such an inspiration and hopefully will guide a lot of our work um, outside of just what she is doing. We have Wanda De La Costa with us. Welcome, Wanda. Thank you. Nice to be happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is going to be so fun. So just a quick bio. Wanda is an architect and educator who has spent nearly 20 years working with indigenous communities in North America. She is a member of the Saddle Lake First Nation. Uh, she's the principal of Tau, uh, which is an architecture firm and a professor at uh, Arizona State University, where she's also the director and founder of the Indigenous Design Collaborative. So there's so much to talk about. We are so happy to have you. We are. Thank you so much, Wanda, for joining us. Um, and we wanted to start off um, if, just by asking you to tell us a little bit about how and why you got involved in architecture. What's, what has been your path? Well, thank you. Um, I guess, you know, the, my path didn't come in a, a typical way. I think most you hear from a lot of people how they dream since they were small of becoming an architect. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have experience meeting an architect or understanding what architecture was until my 20s. I went on a, a very extensive backpacking journey around the world. I was by myself, uh, but I was really curious um, and I ended up going to 30 or 40 countries. And during that time, I realized that what I was doing was touring cities and touring places and getting an idea of the people and their environments, the built environments that they live in to maintain their cultural lifeways. And so when I came back to North America, I think I had an undergrad uh, degree, you know, that was quite a few years old at that time. I applied for a master's in architecture degree. And so my, my push to being an architect came really from that uh, experience, uh, experience traveling around the world more so than a, a deep seated desire uh, to be an architect, which many people can relate to. Yeah, uh, I, I can. I, I think that's a really nice way to come into architecture. Although I will say um, you've spoken in the past about how architecture school was a harder fit for you getting into the school side. I, I've known people who have gone through this and I was hoping that you could talk about that experience of entering the profession of architecture through school and, and how you got through it. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think when you come from, well, two things were really impactful from my lived experience going into architecture school. The first, of course, I had spent many years, you know, hanging out with my my cook and my grandmother uh, over on uh, Satellite Cree Nation on the reserve. And we had, and grandma had no running water. We had a big well in the yard. Um, but I didn't feel like it was a lacking, a way to grow up, you know, there was nothing lacking in that way to grow up. It was rich in terms of our playground was the forest, our playground was bales of hay and the barns and the farm equipment. And we had just to, re- you know, and horses were everywhere in the fields. And so it was a really beautiful upbringing. But I think the value systems that exist within that type of upbringing is quite different to what you would experience, I think, in the city. So that was the first thing that, you know, was very, very different from most of the kids going into architecture school. The second thing, of course, which I just shared was about the traveling. You know, I had seen so many, uh, so much variety in terms of architecture from, you know, the, the underground houses of Cooper Pedy to the um, you know, houses on stilts in the Balinese, um, in these Balinese villages that my ideas of architecture were a lot more broad than I think many of the students who had come from, you know, um, towns across Canada, they might have traveled a bit, but they didn't, you know, they, they were more easily swayed by what was being taught in architecture schools, you know, learning about the masters of the European masters in architecture, the Mies van der Rohe and the Le Corbusier, which for me whole, were much less uh, glamorous to me because I, I realized that there were thousands of different ways to make architecture and no one way was right. Yeah, that means a lot. And, and it is, I think it's still a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge for architecture education right now. So, so you did manage to get through it. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since, since then? Like, how did you take that experience? Did you sort of, I guess I know a lot of people who kind of like uh, made it through architecture school by like grinning and bearing it. And then you get to do what you want to do once you finish school. Um, so how, how did that go for you, that, the transition out? Well, I think for everyone, you know, it's a little bit of a shock because I think what we what we forget um, when we go into architecture school is that architecture is really largely technical. So, you know, if I had to throw a percentage on it, I would say it's 90%. Um, sometimes your days are 90% technical and only maybe even 5% creative or 10% creative. And so I think that is one aspect that I think is a hard transition for most people um, when you get into the working world. And I think what I found is when I was in that that mode of learning the technical side of architecture, you know, we, I was in the corporate firms and I was working on a really large corporate building for, I mean, it was a wonderful building. It's an award-winning building. We were working with Norman Foster Foster and Partners out of London on a project in Calgary that was slated to be, you know, one of the tallest towers in Western North America. So it was a really um, interesting project to work on. But for me, it was so dry. It was so boring in terms of there was no connection. When you're working on a building that's, you know, 75 stories tall and you're working on the 35th lobby that you've um, you're designing over a five-year period, it becomes really boring that there's, you forget that you're building these spaces for people. Architecture is about people. And I think when I realized that it was about 10 years into my corporate career, I realized I needed to eject. I needed to get back to what brought me to architecture in the first place, which was culture, people, 
and bringing that sort of ancestrality, ancestrality or indigeneity into the practice. And so at that point, I think it was about 2010 when I was working for one of the big corporate firms in Calgary and I said, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to get a client, I'm going to go on my own and start my own uh, a firm because I wanted to, wanted the flow. You know, people often talk about when you get into the right career path that feels like it's not work at all. I wanted that and I wanted to work on something that was very, very in tune with um, my belief systems, my lived experience. And that to me was working exclusively on Indigenous design. And so uh, in 2010, I started my practice. I ended up moving to California to do a master's in uh, urban design at a very progressive school called SciArc in Los Angeles. And from there, uh, you know, I, I continue to hone um, my skills and my thoughts. And then I ended up at Arizona State University giving a keynote lecture on Indigenous architecture at a conference and was offered a job to come and teach everything that I was, that was, you know, ruminating through my head at that time. And so I was very fortunate. And I do believe I am now in that flow where I, it does not feel like work. And sometimes I have to put myself to bed at midnight or um, all hours because it is so fascinating to me, this profession. That is so cool. It's so wonderful to hear and wonderful to hear that you found the flow, like to know that that was something that you wanted and to, and to get there is really cool. All right. Well, so we have a lot to talk about about your path and how all the work you've been doing. Um, I want to start by asking what you're most proud of accomplishing so far in your work life. If I mean, it could honestly, it could just be <laughs> everything you just said about being able to reconnect to your values. But I want to hear you say what, what are you most proud of? Well, I would say, I mean, I always say my job right now is to mentor the next generation. You know, I might, I might have, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, good solid years of, you know, pushing uh, left in me. But I think at this point, you know, most Indigenous people, there's a, a sort of an unspoken um, tradition of offering something to the next generation and supporting the community in some way. And so when I started the IDC, uh, I think it was my way to give back to be able to uplift um, a group of students. And as you know, ASU is a very diverse, um, has a very diverse student body. Uh, we are a border state uh, down here. We have 22 tribes, so it's a really rich environment to be teaching in. And I think for these students to have an indigenous architect come and teach architecture, it's really, really uh, game changing for them. You know, if I would have had mm. someone teach indigenous architecture while I was in school back in the you know 90s I probably would have entered that flow 10 or 15 years earlier so this is what I'm I think this is my most proud accomplishment is really offering that support system to fast track these kids into really rewarding careers in architecture yeah yeah that is a huge one it's so interesting for me to think about i love this word you use that a lot of that architecture you were doing the corporate stuff felt very dry there's something about that as a metaphor just thinking about what it's like for students to experience a broader array of types of architecture and ways to practice at that point when they're actually going through their education it's it's just so profound i can only imagine all of the sort of all the branches of work that can come out of that when people have an educational experience that 
allows them to see these other ways of, of working and of learning. So it must just be very cool. Okay, well, tell us, um, uh, I want to hear about what you're working on right now. Is there a project um, that you can share with us that you want listeners to know about? Yeah, I mean, I think the, there's so many, I mean, again, this work is so phenomenally um, interesting to me, but I think one of the areas that we're pushing really hard on, both at the IDC and in my, uh, my private practice, are Indigenous learning centers. And that includes, you know, our early learning uh, K-12, to but also university projects. And why they are so important is, you know, as you know, everyone knows, they've heard these notions of Indigenous knowledge and how it's different and uh, Indigenous ways of knowing. And I think for me, I, I did a school about 10 years ago that really went deep into what that could mean. And we, we put together a room full of the smartest and brightest and uh, most um, connected to culture people that I could find in a city. And we asked that question, if we were going to create a school that was different, that uh, integrated Indigenous um, pedagogies and ways of learning, what would it look like? What would be in that school? Uh, how would it be different from a typical learning environment? And that school, we did a renovation. So it was our first sort of pilot project in 2017. It was a school in Calgary that knits the Tappy Early Learning Center. And that was our first foray into what is possible. And I think at that point, I learned that buildings were not just neutral vessels that we occupy to do other things. They actually are really impactful. They design us. We design them, but they also design us. And I think since then, since we learned and, and we heard from the school uh, a psychologist of the transformation, when those kids moved into that new school and saw their culture everywhere in the planning, in, you know, it was aligned with solstice and equinox, the windows, it had reference to Father's sky, there were living walls inside, there were animal foot tracks on the floor representing our seven grandfathers teaching as a wayfinding tool. Like it was so innovative in terms of what it brought. I realized that um, this is an area that I really want to focus on. And so we have taken that learning. And right now we're working on another Indigenous Early Learning Center. It's a St. Francis Cree bilingual school in Saskatoon. And we're hoping, we're in the middle of it um, in the design stages, but we're hoping to bring that level of deep thinking to create the 2.0 version of what is possible in terms of early learning centers. That's really powerful, Wanda. I, I love hearing about that and, and the notion. And I think, you know, even that idea, just the basic idea of the of that that buildings are not a neutral or not neutral vessels is something that seems like it would be really important to talk about in architecture education as a, just a concept, um, generally speaking. I, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. Well, first of all, I have a question about the Indigenous Design Collaborative that you founded and our director of at ASU. And one thing about that that I have read a couple and heard you, I've heard you comment about this um, at some point uh, was about using, you talk about using community driven metrics um, in that work. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about why you work with those and, and what they reveal. Right, and so when we refer to community driven, well, anything related to um, that is driven by our community uh, is really um, a reaction against the systems and structures, protocols and norms that have been adopted into all of the fields, not only architecture, but it, our work is a reaction against that sort of dominant narrative that we find pervasive around the world. 
you know, I think you could easily compare this to uh, Shanghai or Beijing or all of these very quickly developing uh, urban areas where where throngs of, of architects are imported and they're bringing a different way of looking at the world. And that way may be different from the people who live in that place. And so I think uh, flipping that process on its head where we allow the community to be the leaders co-designing, co-developing, not only the process, but the final products, uh, I think is really, really important to, to this work. And so when we think about architecture for us at the Indigenous Design Collaborative, we're thinking of it not as uh, strictly based in aesthetics or economics, which is often uh, what you hear about architects or architecture being judged on the aesthetics. And I think that is a really shallow way to look at this work because it is not an, it's not a neutral container. And so for us, the metrics that we use is about how we can integrate a full Indigenous research paradigm in our work. So that includes epistemology or ways of knowing, ontology, ways of being, the methodology, ways of doing, and finally, most importantly, axiology, the value systems within our cultures. And I think when you begin to integrate all four of those, I truly believe the architecture becomes something other, other than what is being taught in schools, in you know, more mainstream uh, schools across North America. It's richer and it's driven by a really, really Indigenous-centric um, purpose and focus. I love that, those four lenses and how that, how that can translate. Um, and you've talked a little bit about sort of what, uh, you know, a sort of motivation that you have to educating next generations as reasons for your being an educator in addition to running a practice. Um, I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your appointment is a joint appointment in architecture and construction. And can you talk a little bit about the significance of that? Yeah, and I, you know, I like to think of universities, I think it's challenging because they are a think tank. You know, in many, in many aspects of what we do, we, we think, we write, we, we present, and it's about ideas. But for me, I think what is really important in this work is that we also become a do tank. We need to do things. We need to practice. Even if we get it wrong, we need to we need to take action towards helping our communities. You know, I think of ASU. We're a really large institution. We're the part, largest public university in the U.S. Um, how can we contribute to our local economies of this region? And so part of my appointment within the construction school is really about creating uh, an opportunity to do things. And by that, I mean build things. So for instance, this year, we, uh, we've been working well about four years with uh, a local community called the Gila River Indian community. They were interested in, in uh, increasing the energy efficiency of their home, but also to bring more indigenous centric principles, design principles to their homes. And so we're working with a local construction company, with the community, with a group of uh, scholars from the school and faculty to build a net zero, very sustainable home. So an example of a do tank versus more of just a think tank. I think if I was just writing papers on the subject, yes, I think it would be useful, but would it have an impact in our communities? probably less likely. So I do, um, I'm, I'm very happy to have one foot in one of the uh, fields at ASU that is actually actively 
has the act have the potential to actively do work in community. Right. Well, that seems so particularly relevant right now when this sort of you know the the need for forward movement on um, climate responsive design and community building everywhere is so great. Um, so I I love that notion and the whole idea that that you know design is not enough if you have to be realizing it right and realizing what those principles and and then of course it gets emulated and and it builds on itself as well so that's really powerful as someone who's trying to i think change the industry in a number of ways and some thinking that has pervaded the industry for a long time i'm wondering if you think about yourself as being a part of a movement and if so how I do. I, I feel like this is this is an interesting time in architecture. You know, I, I often tell my students that I can't believe what an opening there is for this topic right now. And I tell them that 15 years ago, if I said I specialized in Indigenous architecture, people would have no um, reference for this concept, right? It wasn't even a thing back then. And so um, I think where we're pushing on really hard um, in terms of creating this movement for me, I think part of the work of changing the paradigm is in, uh, involves a number of things. And I think the first and foremost, we I often look at architecture as a very cursory practice, the way it's taught, you know, centering on aesthetics, um, not taking any responsibility for the cause and effect uh, of our work. And so I think we need to begin to look at design as research that there is a cause and effect and we need to be um, accountable. And so our strategies for disruption and in disrupting the sort of status quo of the architecture, you know, at the IDC, we have a sort of a five point structure, which is really promote awareness, celebrate beauty, advocate inclusivity, train ambassadors and mentor the next generation. And so that to us is a formula for um, bringing uh, a more indigenous centric way of thinking through a, a really secure strategy that I think many people can uh, begin to align with, not only indigenous people. I think when we look at the concept of indigeneity, it's very broad. And I do believe it includes more than what we would think of uh, in terms of um, nor native North American indigenous communities, you know, from Canada to even South America. I think it includes every culture worldwide that is aiming to reconnect with their ancestral environments and that's a very very broad um, a broad population it is and I love that um, I, I think it's I think I hope that people listening are sort of having one of those moments of opening up their understanding of what we're talking about here when we talk about um, learning indigeneity, learning, um, learning indigenous practices and ways of doing our work and ways of thinking. It's really it, like, it's just so striking to think about how process is as much, if not more of your focus in that you're doing in the education work as it is sort of the, the notions of form or, you know, climate sensitivity or materiality, those kinds of things that we oftentimes think of as the stereotypical practices of architecture and how in of itself the challenge of 
uh, rethinking architecture from that perspective of indigeneity really is about rethinking process, rethinking purpose, rethinking who you are in the broad spectrum of all of this work that gets done, um, uh, you know, the community, how it exists. This is super cool. Um, I want to ask you what you think needs to happen now to further the rise of indigenous design. What would you like to see? What will help it gain more understanding, more people thinking about things this way? Well, I think, you know, there's a number of movements underway that I think we always, we're always looking for movements that we align with because, you know, there's nothing better than finding people who think the same and uh, are struggling with the same challenges in their, in their work. And we call this, and it's been referred to as the transition imaginary. So creating alternative pathways toward resilience and sustainment. And one of the, the big movements that I teach through is this notion of Indigenous futurity, which is essentially allowing Indigenous communities to self-define and self-represent what they imagine their future to be, what the aim is for their futurity. And I think the closest reference we often talk about is Wakanda in the movie Black Panther. Do you remember that environment where you, it was a world that didn't look yes. like other worlds and there were the symbols were very unique and the, the, even the fashion was very unique and the architecture was very unique and there were value systems associated with that community. And I think these notions of us imagining and reimagining what our future is there are many people doing that right now. And I think that for me is the biggest strength building um, that is happening within the field right now. And I think besides that, you know, getting beside partners and collaborators who think the same as you, which really is helpful. Um, there's this really beautiful concept that is emerging. There was a, a woman, uh, her name is Watson, that wrote a book called Low Tech. And she was talking about indigeneity globally about this this notion of returning to this interconnectedness of you know it's not just a physical world that we're inhabiting but it's mental it's spiritual it's emotional and it's connected to our environment and it takes into effect all of those things as as relational and interconnected and i think we often forget that we forget that we are connected you know indigenous people of course have a a natural affinity for animals and plants and so forth we we regard many of these aspects that most people would think of as non-living we regard them as alive and animate and i think that um, ability to see the world through that lens that connects us all from people to people from people to animals i think is part of i see a futurity that would benefit many people. And so if I thought um, there was a movement underway that I think could have a profound effect, it would be that notion of relationality and applying that and teaching that through architecture and enlarging people's awareness of our place amongst many other things in this world. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I want to also um, give the shout out to the to the book. It's Julia Watson, I believe. And she also has a lovely TED talk where she kind of starts to introduce um, this concept of, of low tech um, and and has all these wonderful examples of indigenous design projects and methods and ways of thinking. Um, so it's a cool book to check out. And I, I will say, I, I don't know whether this would be one you would support, but I feel like I learned a lot from the book Braiding Sweetgrass, which is, seems to have become a classic in some ways. So if folks haven't read that, I think it's, 
it's a helpful, it was helpful for me to get a better sense of what these ways of knowing felt like, and even to some degree how they, how they related to the built environment and the ways in which we create shelter for ourselves. And so, yeah, like it all resonates and it brings me back to a lot of the stories she told in that, that book. Um, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited about the work you're doing. So thank you for, for that. Uh, so I w- want to ask you, I guess it sort of gets to these questions of envisioning the future. Uh, where did you think we would be in the year 2021 as an architecture industry or sort of what, what have your expectations been up to this point And do you feel like they've been met? I think we can also talk about sort of what you what you would like to see in the future, almost one and the same to me. It's sort of what what is it what is the what is the path of change look like to you, and how are we doing? Well, I think you know in regard to the last comment I made about the transition imaginary, I think part of what is fueling this movement at this time and creating an open openness for subjects such as indigenous architecture is the increasing diversity in our world. So many of you know that the United States is, is slated to become a majority minority country. So in 20 by 2045, they say there will be more people who are non Caucasian in this country than there are people who are our Uh, white. And so I think this suggests a different lens will be needed to be able to connect the user groups, you know, who the architecture is for, from the people who are creating the architecture, which as we know, uh, as women in this field, uh, this profession gets more white and more male as um, the positions as you know, within the hierarchy of the architecture. So the principals, the partners, and so forth, majority are white men. And so I think for me, there's a massive disconnect that is happening. And I think the movement that is happening in this time is a perfect response to the disconnect between the user groups and those creating architecture. So did I think um, we would be here? Well, you know, I was, I was counting on it because I, I knew I wanted to see something different. I wanted to see it opening up. I wanted to see the subjects, uh, you know, being poked at and prodded at and questions. You know, we should be having a healthy dose of questioning in this field. And I think those old, uh, you know, techniques seem to be stagnant from, I don't know, the 40s to the 50s to the 60s of ways of creating architecture. And we haven't really changed them much. And so I think this notion of our increasingly diverse world is uh, what will set the next 20 or uh, 50 years in the field apart from what we have seen in the last 150 years. Uh. It's so nice to hear you talking about it this way. I'm so ready. I'm so ready for this. <laughs> Just have to say, it's like lovely. It kind of brings tears to my eyes. Okay, so sorry. I'll, I'll take a step back. And I, I want to ask you one last question, which is if you can talk a bit about how sustainability weaves into that future, how the concepts that we've been working with around the notion of you know, sort of more broadly speaking, environmentalism, environmental justice, how, how you see that particular work in this broader picture. And the reason I ask that is because so many of the people that listen to our podcast 
see themselves as practitioners, not just of architecture, but of sustainability in architecture. And uh, we like to envision how their roles will evolve, you know, out of the sort of what we, you know, sometimes refer to as the sort of lead checklist monkey type of role into something more, uh, more profound and, and hopefully more impactful. So I, I just wonder what your vision for, for sustainability and how it weaves into things evolves or how it, how it rolls out and hopefully some words that will help those of us working on this specifically to kind of imagine how we can be a part of it. Sure. So I think that that question leads me to two different related um, places in my in my mind. And I think the the first of which, you know, this this long standing connection with the earth, you know, when I first started doing this work 20 or so years ago, and I, every time I'd go out and do a project in a reserve or a reservation, I would often get into a car or truck with one of the locals and they would take me around their community and share stories of the land and share stories of the place. We would visit sometimes local landforms, um, sacred sites, places where they gathered. Sometimes I was even invited to the ceremonies in the community. And I realized after many years of doing this, and it, was, it became a practice, and it is now a part of our practice at our firm, that these were ways of gathering and expressing knowledge. So this multinodal nature of, of where information comes from I think is a very different way of looking at uh, architecture and even the world, but it at the same time offers us this more holistic understanding of a place. Uh, I really wish that we would teach like this in architecture school, but we do not. And I think to bring that back to, you know, what I, what I now know what was happening, it comes down to the knowledges and I, I I say it in plural because we believe there are four different knowledges and I write a lot about this because I think it begins to hone in on why our processes are different. So in an indigenous worldview, we have the traditional knowledge, you know, based on stories and handed down over time. We have empirical knowledge, which is that which is gained through careful observation and practice over time. So in the kind of in the field, we have revealed knowledge gained through vision, ritual and ceremony. And then the, the one that we're most familiar with, the contemporary knowledge gained through education and problem solving. But these four forms of knowledge, I think, are vitally important uh, to understand a place and to be able to create architecture that... Um, allows those four knowledges to flourish. So I talked about the education centers at the beginning of this, of this podcast, and I, you know, how important it was to build all of those types of knowledges into a place, because it holds them, it carries them, it supports them, it preserves them, and it embeds them in our future in a permanent way, such as in a building. The second thing that that um, question that you brought up brings to me is that I think of our bioclimatic architecture. You know, I think of the, what we call vernacular architecture um, and all those beautiful underlying principles of living that come from living closely on the land. And I think, you know, in those days when we toured with our community, with our indigenous communities, for instance, in a Cree community, which is where uh, my roots are, I would often uh, get lessons in the teepee, what I called bioclimatic architecture, which we know most of the world's architecture was bioclimatic prior to the 20th century. It was climatically 
um, responsive and it connected to the place. And so when you, we think of the teepee, we think it's a very simple structure. You know, what do we think of skin and some poles? But when we look at that, there's all this ingenuity that is built into that. The use of materials, you know, the thermally effective wall assembly for really cold winters where, where I'm from, the filtering skin of the teepee, the, con the natural air convection that is built into that structure, the really small footprint on Mother Earth, uh, using biodegradable materials, and then, of course, this amazing versatility of these original structures. You could drag it around behind a team of dogs or horses, and you could change the wall systems from summer to winter so that it would uh, be um, functional in all seasons. So I think the, this ingenuity that comes from living closely to the land and having that amount of knowledge that comes through these four knowledges built into our understanding should be our goal for the future to, to me. And that is what really we are trying, really aiming for in our work is that full connection to earth-centric architecture. That's so powerful, Wanda. I love it. And it's, it was giving me <laughs> some flashbacks when you were saying that, you know, we really should be teaching this in architecture school. I do think there are a few people out there trying to do that. And usually one of us gets to maybe touch, you know, those of us who go through those sequences get to touch, have interact with one of those people along the way. And what they're teaching is, is basically opposed to so many of the other frameworks that are being taught. It's so interesting. And I, I just, I love the, the notion of those four sort of areas of knowledge and how they're all required to do something really holistic and place-based um, that makes sense. I wanted to close, we, we like to close by asking a question about who you are most inspired by these days. And it could be anyone that you feel inspired by. Who am I most inspired by? It would be my students. Uh, I recently had a student come to me and say that uh, she was told in a session deep in community that every person should have not only an elder as a mentor, but youth as mentor. And the reason that is important is to be able to have the full spectrum of perspectives guiding your way in the future. So I would leave it there with my students. That's beautiful. I love it, Wanda. That's really lovely. Yes, it is. Thank you. Um, it's a wonderful way to wrap up such a such a thoughtful conversation. Wanda, it's been so great to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. I hope that you guys get I hope it's everything that you need in there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is. It's wonderful. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, thanks again to Acuity for hosting and to you all, our listeners, please leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next week.